Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Denise Chisholm, Director of Quantitative Market Strategy, joins us again to share her unique insights and perspectives on the sectors to watch in U.S. and global markets right now. Denise is a student of history who uses historical probability analysis when looking at the markets. And with host Pamela Ritchie today, she'll unpack the trends and underlying indicators that can be used to evaluate the strength of the markets. Today's podcast was recorded on May 10th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy, or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Great to see you, Denise. How are you? Great to be here. I'm well, Pamela. How are you? Very well. It's, it's, it looks like it's a sunny backdrop in, in Boston. It actually looks lovely. Finally. Finally, a sunny backdrop in Boston. Yes, I'm enjoying it. That's great. Um, okay, so let's, let's dig straight into this. For anyone who didn't believe that the Fed was going to pause, are we watching them in the market play catch up? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, that's that's certainly what we're potentially seeing. And you're seeing it in the Fed fund futures expectations sort of as we speak. But the real change, I think, happened with the banking crisis. I think, look, the CPI, like 0.4 isn't like a great print. We can talk about the print in a second. But I think that the real driver behind the Fed was the banking crisis. And I think if there is... Um, an issue with how much they have already done, potentially catching up to the market as inflation is slowing, enter the banking crisis, I think made them much more open to a pause and to this sort of watch, wait, and see what actually happens to inflation. And then I think within this, you know, the underlying details were actually much better than the, the overall month to month print. You know, I don't yeah. really what, know. What are they? Sorry. Yeah. I just wanted to hear what you think they are like that stood out. Yeah. So we came in at point four on both the core and the overall CPI, which doesn't seem that great. But remember, we're very volatile month to month because they're still having trouble seasonally adjusting. And so it's always best to sort of step back and look at a six month average. And you've heard me say X, the shelter component, your run rate average is actually below 2%. Still below 2% on the prior six months. We bounce back and forth month to month, but generally speaking, that trend has been the same. I think there were two sort of exogenous factors, the spike in gas prices that we saw that's now been reversed, and a little spike in terms of used, used car prices, which is also likely to be reversed in the leading indicators. So you look at that, plus the fact that Powell's sort of stated uh portion of the CPI that he's focused on, which is they call it the super core or the core services X shelter came in at general like 0.11, I think. You don't, I actually, it's funny because different people calculate it different ways because it's actually not a thing, but it's between 0.1 and 0.2, which is much lower than what it has been and the lowest annualized run rate since July. So all of that plus the banking crisis has really now cemented this potential for a pause. It's really not a thing. 
it's really, it has never been a thing. Or I shouldn't say it's not a thing, it's, it's a very new thing. So everybody's sort of still struggling with exactly do you calculate it? Because it's actually like a calculation that can be done easier in the PC later, not to get into all the technicalities, but you have to deconstruct the entirety of the CPI and then reconstruct it to actually get the print. Yeah, I, I think you were on a panel at, uh, for Fidelity not, not long ago, and not surprisingly, the banking crisis was sort of front and center. What did you think, either surprising messages that came out of that or questions particularly, because it was interesting, you know, what's on people's minds. People are writing in right now telling us what's on their minds. But what did you learn in that panel recently? Yes, it was a great panel discussion. I actually did a, a jointly with with Matt Reed, our banking analyst, uh, and it was with our top 250 um, custody clients down in Florida. And it was a great conference and there were a lot of great questions and it was pretty small. So there were a lot of questions on the banking crisis. And I think the concern is that the market has been sort of shifting bank to bank, right? Who's next in that sort of echo of 2009, like the next in line. And Matt and I were both discussing how it seems very different from a backdrop perspective that we saw in 2009. For me, when I look at the data, for him, when he looked at sort of the bottom-up P&L and liquidity issues at the banks that are very dissimilar. But for me, when I look at the data, it's really credit has stayed fairly muted, even despite the fact that First Republic obviously then you know got taken out that weekend prior uh, by J.P. Morgan. So. You're seeing credit reaction. Credit should and has reacted in the past, has reacted to that canary in the coal mine. We're still seeing it fairly muted in the market, which is overall a really good sign. I think the second concern we got a lot, which, which was a question on bank lending standards, and the narrative is really simple and it's pretty easy to do, and you can throw a lot of charts up on it. And I didn't do any of this, but the narrative could easily go well, you know, banks have tightened lending standards so much so that the economy is going to slow and shift us into a recession. And we haven't seen a recession yet, and that will likely provide more downside for stocks. We've sort of talked about that. Yeah. What they point to from a data perspective is the sluice survey, right? So the percentage of banks that are tightening credit conditions on whatever it is that you're looking at. There's actually a longer survey within that survey that's the bank willingness to lend data. The other sluice parts only go back to the 90s. This one goes back to 1962. It's quarterly data. We were already in the bottom decile before the crisis actually hit. So that's an interesting data point because you would think that, well, that's got to be a bad signal for stocks, right? If It must be a leading indicator, but it actually turns out that it's much more of a coincident indicator. And more importantly, as it relates to the stock market from that bottom decile level over the next year, the stock market tends to return on average 8%, which is exactly the same as if banks were really loose in lending in their top quartile position, 8%. Now, look, the, the ranges are wide, but it sort of shows you what I mean. It's not the leading indicator that everybody really expects, wants, or thinks it will be. And I do think that there is additional signal in it, because if you say, well, the range is wide, can you tease out any sort of lesson from it? You can. Looks exactly like payrolls to me. So within that bottom decile, so we only have 10% of those data points, you'll see that there's a clear relationship between how much stocks already went down to how much then they can go up in the future. So if they have already gone down, we've gone down you know, 10% over the course of the last year, that increases your odds of actually stocks going up despite the fact that lending standards are tight. Come back to that 
That's absolutely fascinating. Just, just come back to the, the payrolls piece there, because we obviously saw Friday, which was strong. Yeah, and I think that, that that sort of showed you like the inherent market bets too, because, you know, it was like, let's say strong and in line, but there was actually a really good market reaction. I think that shows you just how many people are betting on sort of a wipeout payroll number and a potentially sudden stop recession. And right now, I just don't see that in the cards. Doesn't mean that it can't happen, but right now the data isn't lining up to, to sort of increase your odds to that. But the interesting thing is if payrolls continue to slow over time, that's very similar to bank lending standards in the sense that it's either coincident or, or lagging. That's actually more lagging. I would say that bank lending standards are pretty coincident and, and payrolls tend to be lagging. So if you knew that they were actually going to contract over the course of the next year, you'd be like, well, that's got to be bad for stocks. It's not really. It's 50-50 odds for stocks. And again, within that deceleration, what do you see? you are more likely to go up in the future if you have already gone down in the past. And these are all just weird mathematical quirks to tell you what you already know, which is that peak to trough contraction last year we saw in the S&P of almost 30% and even more in the NASDAQ and some individual stocks down 60 to 70% covered a lot of ground in terms of the bad news that the market can discount. And that might even include a banking crisis. Wow. And the other piece, I mean, just to sort of throw all these other things to get your thoughts on yeah. it, story. I mean, the margins are fine. Yes. So they're down a lot, but still much healthier than we've seen through the course of time. So that sort of trend that you've seen from corporate profit margins have been higher cycle to cycle. That's still true. And we've seen a contraction with the spike in inflation and sort of the decline, I should say, the massive deceleration in real GDP growth, which is sort of in line with that. But we're now at the point where earnings have contracted, right? Margins have contracted now year on year, mildly, mildly relative to history, but have contracted. So you're sort of looking at a, a situation where unless it's 2009, that was literally the only instance in the data, if you're an investor and you're willing to look over the course of a year, you have 90% odds that margins are going to expand and earnings are actually going to reaccelerate over the course of the next year. And that's why you see things like, because we're down now year on year, that tends to be a contrarian positive for the market and positive for cyclical sectors. Oh my gosh, that's so fascinating for cyclical sector. Okay, is there a, is there a catalyst to be looked at when we when we see the debt ceiling, the date itself um, drawing closer? This question is, you know, any thoughts at which point does it become unsustainable? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know the answer to whether or not it's going to become unsustainable. It'll be it's sustainable till it's not. I don't think we're at that point yet. What you've seen historically is. What ends up being a problem for the market is a currency crisis, not necessarily a debt crisis. They're related, but they're not always the same thing. So, you know, complex issues around the debt need to translate to the dollar on a sustainable basis to really get it to impact, at least historically, to get it to impact the market. But I get a lot of debt ceiling questions a lot. And I have to say the way I think about the debt ceiling is, look, you know, how do you think about a tail event? you know, that could be really bad. And the questions really like the the way I answer it is by thinking about how much the market has already discounted. So not trying to say that you want to sort of bet 
either for or against that. I don't want to bet on the fact that it's going to be an issue, but I don't want to bet on the fact that it's not going to be an issue either. That's why I tend to focus on sort of the math around the discounting mechanism. Now, there is a lot of, and I have to say, like, I, I debated, there's a lot of sort of questions and thoughts about liquidity associated with the with the debt ceiling and the, the general account and treasuries. And there, it's true, there has been a very, 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 very tight correlation between liquidity in the general account and the stock market over the last 21 months. But that has never really been true since 2009. So I'm very wary of betting on short-term correlations that don't tend to have a long-term corollary backup because I don't know if something else is driving both of those things and that that is very a different situation. So I don't want to say that the debt ceiling couldn't be its own crisis. It certainly can. But I focus on one that liquidity isn't typically an inherent driver to the overall market. And two, I think the market has discounted a fair amount of bad news in advance, which may include the debt ceiling as well. That is fascinating. So it might be priced in to an extent. So let's get to either the sectors. You're actually going to talk a little bit more about cap size, essentially, today, looking at what has been kind of washed out, and therefore yeah. you'll tell us what you think on a relative basis. Good. Yes. I mean, whenever you think about opportunity in the market, I'm always looking for anomalous signals that you can find. And then the upside to, you know, is what you position to play for in the most anomalous signals. Now, look, I mean, it's not for the faint of heart anomalous signals, but it's the area of the market that you probably know has been the weakest, which is small caps. What you'll see is what I have talked about for a very long time, which is my favorite measure of fear, which is valuation spreads. And it shows you this is actually on book. So book valuation spreads, remember, valuation spreads are just the gap between the top and bottom quartile, and they're when investors sell anything they think is risky, buy anything they think is safe, uh, and they sort of bid up this valuation gap and usually want to take the other side because it's usually a pretty good contrarian indicator, not to pick bottoms, but to look through bottoms. Now, we haven't, like, we haven't seen small caps really do anything other than lag large caps, but they've been bouncing off the same bottom they've been on since that peak to trough decline. But what you see here is it's even on book spreads, which are concerns about solvency. So look, if you are worried about the banking crisis, you know, being an impetus for a, a bigger slowdown and more defaults and all of that issue that's sort of brought up in the markets, what that tells you is that fear is already priced in. And what that typically leads to is a lot more upside in stocks than you would think. And if you sort of, yeah, it's very monotonic. I did the quartiles, Q1 through Q4, and then you can see the bottom decile when spreads are very tight, I would say no fear. And then top decile when they're wide and then the top 5%, which we're even ahead of that in small caps. And what you see is the absolute return in the Russell 2000 over the next 12 months. And yes, that is almost 50%, right? So this is the opportunity that I see in these fear indicators. Doesn't mean that there's no downside, right? But there, the upside is, to me, extreme relative to the downside of the indicators that I think might be priced in. It's fascinating. So, so take us through. So 2022, we know sort of the broad story. We certainly know what happened to a lot of the, the big tech names, for instance. Um, just take us through what 2022 meant for small caps. Yes, it was much worse in terms of you know, no recovery in small caps. We saw the, the higher up you were on the cap spectrum, this is even before the banking crisis, the more likely you were to advance. 
And I think you saw that sort of across 2022 and the banking crisis really magnified it with the concerns around small banks and mid-sized banks do lending to small businesses. So that knock-on effect is about to get potentially worse. And again, just like we sort of saw, you know, in talking about a 2022 event, just like we saw the spike in crude oil when right. Russia invaded Ukraine, it was almost instantaneous. And if you said like your biggest supply shock pretty much in our history, and I was little in the 70s, so obviously a major supply shock happened during my lifetime, but you know, our, the biggest supply side shock during our investable lifetime. And if you were just say, what's gonna happen over the next year, crude ended up down from that point. So I think that that shows you just how quickly the market can price in what all the outcomes are very quickly. And I think that the same might even happen to something like small caps, which yes, it is likely to increase bankruptcies in sort of the smaller business space, but what of that isn't priced in? And I think that we see this sort of in the market a lot. I mean, we saw it obviously in the pandemic where you basically discounted one of the deepest recessions in a month. So let's remember that was just, you know, under three years ago, where, or is it three years ago? Was it three, three years, years ago? ago? Yeah, I, it is. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of hard to, it's still a haze, <laughs> yes. So I think when you think about those echoes and market reaction and just how quickly the market can move, I think that this measure sort of takes that into account. So as much as the news is quite dire, I think that there are still opportunities. So that doesn't, I'm assuming, necessarily mean that large cap have, has done its job necessarily. Uh, and it's interesting, large cap tech, is it becoming more defensive? There's lots of questions in there. So I'm kind of curious what you think. But as you're looking at the cap size of things ultimately. What what does it mean for larger cap? Do you, do you hold on to most of them or how do the prospects look? Yes, I would say it's, I don't think that you should necessarily sell your large caps to go into small caps, but I would say if you own small caps and I own small caps, don't sell them here, right? There's still an opportunity. So when you think back through like how I talk through the market is okay, this hasn't worked in line with the signals because they've derated relative to the, relative to large caps. Is that an opportunity or is that the market telling you something? To me, I still think it's an opportunity, but it doesn't mean that there aren't other opportunities in the market. And I think technology is a palpable one, leadership, and that's up and down the cap spectrum now. And I think that that's a very different setup in 2023 than we saw in 2022, where really, I mean, you know, technology is, depending on how you calculate it for, for GICs, is, you know, 20% of the S&P 500. So when you think about market leadership, you don't want that moving against you. And now it's actually moving for you in 2023. I call it a recovery play. And the reason I call it a recovery play is because you've already seen the margin contraction. You've already seen the earnings growth contraction. There are some indicators that earnings growth in technology stocks is actually bottoming. And with that, you line it up in history. And unless you think it's different this time, you get really strong odds of a rebound play. If you want to play that defense as well, maybe. I think that it might rhyme. It certainly was defensive during the pandemic, but I think that part of its defensive qualities were really captured in the fact that earnings growth was strong. So I think that ultimately earnings growth is what you want to think about. And oftentimes, especially in cyclical sectors like technology and consumer discretionary, bad earnings growth is when you want to be looking. And good earnings growth is when you want to be selling, which is ironic because they're cyclicals.
Yeah, that's so fascinating. I mean, we used to speak with you about different types of sectors. I mean, are, are the sectors changing? That, that kind of the slightly philosophical question, this, you know, is big tech defense, what, what do you want to call it? Um, but, but are they shifting? Yes. I mean, in some ways, you can see it in the GICs changes every time they change it. They're moving, um, you know, Visa and MasterCard moved from, from which were, they went from technology to financials, right, which is a big GIC change. So, yes, I mean, I think that they're they're evolving and they will always evolve. I mean, in some ways, you know, when we think about thematic investing or really the sectors of the next decade, like what should we think about as investors how should we group stocks together? Where do Visa and MasterCard belong? Are they technology or are they financials? And in some ways, you can always sort of, as a quant, you can always go back and say, well, what do they look like in terms of performance? Because at the end of the day, we care more about performance than necessarily business model. So you can start to like group stocks by sort of performance um, as opposed to business models. So there are a bunch of different ways that you can bucket stocks. So yes, I think that you know technology specifically to get really philosophical is pervasive now across the gig sectors. So I think which technology would you like to think about? Now look, I mean the way I use historical data is to look at that two-digit gig, however you know the S and P classifies it, and then look at that relative valuation data. But you can do that for sectors, factors, themes. Uh, et cetera. You can even do it for fixed income. So historical data is historical data, but I, I think your point is correct. And I think that that's one of the reasons why the margins are likely evolving in a positive trend because technology has pervaded the S&P 500. When you look historically uh, as either sectors changed or shifted or evolved, um, you get sort of into the subsectors of, of the big, so, you know, within technology, there's piles of subsectors, does that become something that grows in terms of terminology? Yes, and it probably should. I mean, I think that the, it's easier to cut up sectors to get more specific exposure. So again, when you think about, you know, you're dividing up the S&P 500 into 10 gig sectors, there's not a lot of diffusion in those 10 gig sectors. I know this because I actually managed, you know, internally a sector rotation pilot. You know, you can get sort of 10 times bang for your buck in terms of diffusion and alpha by buying individual stocks as opposed to buying a sector. So that's why, you know, it always depends on what you as an investor want to do and how potent you want to make that. So do you want something that's got a very diverse, broad view that can go up, but it also won't go down that much? That's a two-digit gig sector level. If you want something that packs a little bit more punch, then you're down to the industry level. Right. So if you knew that technology was going to work, it's likely that semiconductors work. And I, um, you know, mathematically, if those two things align, it's it's very likely that semiconductors broadly outperform the two digit GIC just because they move more because they're at the industry level. So you always want to think about a portfolio from a sizing perspective. Once you go down into that industry and sub-industry and get more specific, you will get more cohesive basket, less diversified. So you potentially need to put less capital at risk to get the same amount of alpha. That's the way I think about it. So yesterday we spoke about healthcare um, and, you know, how healthcare can help to be defensive in, in, in tricky markets. Um, Within the discussion of healthcare, I was wondering if you could provide, on the spot here, but just kind of the history of how healthcare does in various Fed cycles, for instance. I mean, so it looks like rates 
have stopped rising in, in the U.S., so maybe it's a, a time of a pause. Is, is there kind of a history of how sectors do in, yeah, in the various cycles of the Fed? Yes. So I will say healthcare looks a lot like consumer staples back in history, where they have decent track records of being both offense and defense. But that track record that is throughout the course of history has really not been true over the last decade. The problem with both healthcare and consumer staples, more so for consumer staples than healthcare, and I'll get to the Fed in a minute, has been really the margin compression. So when you think about that cycle to cycle margins being higher, these are the two sectors that it has not been true for. And they're still struggling year to date, or I would say over the last you know two years uh, where margins have really compressed. That's sort of a problem as when you think through history, because they're not really the same sectors in that offense and defense. So fast forward to today, you know, what does it mean from, from a you know, Fed perspective? From a Fed pause perspective, a Fed pause has usually meant, and I say usually, but not with very strong odds, a pro-cyclical bet. Now, healthcare has been one of the defensive sectors that historically has been able to keep up with that. So it doesn't necessarily mean that it's massively negative for healthcare, but I do think that the bias from a Fed pause, and you always have to think, what does the Fed pause mean? Does the Fed pause mean the next move is a cut because we're in a recession? Well, then that's a defensive portfolio where it is likely that even regardless of margin compression, that healthcare utilities and consumers work. That's not my base case. My base case is the Fed pauses it is likely to me that, that you know, CPI continues to decelerate. We end up with something over the next three to six months that looks like a run rate of around you know, three that looks a lot less onerous than where we were, which is, let's call it you know, six to eight, depending on if you're talking about core or headline. And from that perspective, the Fed could cut because real rates are too high. That's a different setup. I don't think that that's pro-defense. I don't think that that's pro-healthcare. I think there are better opportunities in you know, technology stocks and consumer discretionary. That is fascinating. Thank you so much for, for fanning that out and, and kind of telling the story in different places there. Um, see, Denise, I appreciate your optimism. Nice to have optimism. Um, do you worry about geopolitical events that could impact the markets? Yes, I mean, in the sense that, you know, you worry about a lot of things. The, the problem associated with geopolitical events is kind of like the Russia-Ukraine thing. It was priced in instantaneously. So that's why I spend, I don't know, the unknowns, right? That's why I spend a whole lot of time on what the market has discounted and when I think that it's potentially offsides. Right. So if, if again, I, you know, I worry about the risk reward associated with geopolitical event and supply shocks and all of that. But at the same time, I think you have to remember that because the market prices things in so quickly, it matters more what the market has discounted than whatever that exogenous factor is. Maybe not for that month, but when you look at it over the course of a year. And I think it's a great way to think about the banking crisis in the same way, because I know oh. I'll give you my optimism. I know that people always point to the chart, like once the Fed raises interest rates, something breaks, right? And they point to those arrows and see it happens every cycle and see we're seeing it again. And you could even, you know, talk about a geopolitical event in the same context. But the funny thing is all of those arrows, not very many of them, except for the financial crisis, were really big market events. 
So you could be right on something that happens, but you really have to be open-minded on the market outcome. I actually did a talk for AAII for like the pitfalls associated with using data to invest. And my first thing, my first lesson was don't assume that you know the market outcome because we have so many of these issues and crude oil is one of them invading Ukraine. But the other was even, you know, back to Volcker raising interest rates in 1979 and that testing speech. And, you know, we had a Fed coming great guns for inflation. Inflation was way more entrenched and was much more of a problem. And what did stocks do? Went up 25 percent. And for those of you who thinks that, you know, stocks can't go up through a recession, I will say this data point. You know, everybody remembers your recessions in 1970, 1975, 1980, and 1982. The low that we actually saw between 1975 and 1985, 1978. So the low seen in the 1980 recession was higher than the low seen in 1980. And the low in 1980, which was a deeper recession than, yeah. than low in 1982, which was deeper than the recession seen in 1980, was higher than the low in 1980. So you actually made money through two like back-to-back -back recessions, one quite deep if you bought in 78 and closed your eyes. Amazing. So I wonder what we can look through here. Um, fantastic to get your thoughts on small caps. Denise Chisholm, thank you for joining us on Fidelity Connects. Really appreciate all of the different perspectives that you bring to us uh, based on all of the data. That Always great to be here, Pamela. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. And while visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.